0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's our friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a discussion of our first impressions of Disney+, and, soon, some talk about the Star Wars spinoff, The Mandalorian. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. show I'm Keith Phipps here with Scott Tobias
1: and Tasha Robinson. Genevieve
0: Kosky is, well, we're suing for custody for Genevieve Kosky. Uh, She may or may not be back next week for our next few episodes. We'll be considering two films about marriages, how they work, how they end and how they affect the children touched by them. And Scott, are you okay?
2: Man, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to make this French toast, kid keeps knocking over the juice falling off playground equipment there's this whole drama about halloween costumes i got this cool trick that i do with a pen knife but it went awfully awry and well parenting is hard guys
0: it Is but I think you might be confusing your own life with stuff that happens in the movies we're discussing. That's possible, I guess. I'm just tired
2: all the time. I get it.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about our pairing anyway? I'll do my
2: best. Uh, Released in 1979, Robert Benton's Kramer vs. Kramer tapped into concern about splintered families that first arose in the decade after the introduction of no-fault divorces, which made leaving a marriage easier while also introducing a new set of hurdles for those who needed to negotiate the terms of a split and its impact on children. The film stars Dustin Hoffman as an on-the-rise ad executive who unexpectedly becomes a single parent after the departure of his wife, played by Meryl Streep. Kramer vs. Kramer earned widespread acclaim, won multiple Oscars, and became the highest grossing film of 1979, beating out such films as The Amityville Horror and Alien. Beyond this, its title became a shorthand for the new reality confronting divorced families. In the second half of this pairing, we'll look at a new film that considers what it means to end a marriage and to be a parent after that marriage ends. Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, starring Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as parents trying to navigate a bi-coastal divorce that places their eight-year-old son at the center of the split.
0: They're films that consider the end of love and the challenges of finding happiness, but also the difficulty of doing right by the next generation. They're wrenching, but also disarmingly funny at times. And they're films that will likely inspire a variety of opinions about where their sympathies lie. We'll be back to discuss them after a short break.
1: I'm leaving you.
2: Was this some kind of joke? Did you know that all the best chefs are men?
1: You some shell in
2: there. Oh, it's all right. You like your French toast crunchy, don't you?
1: (laughs) No, Mommy always buys the kind with the orange circles on it.
2: I want my son. You can't have
0: him. What makes you so sure he doesn't want me?
2: I'm late. I'm not that late, though. I'm only 20 minutes.
0: All the other mothers were there before you.
2: It will never happen again, okay?
0: I'm not saying he doesn't need his father, but I really believe he needs me more mother
2: my wife says that she loves billy and i believe she does but i'd like to know what law is it that says that a woman is a better parent simply by virtue of her sex how does it feel good okay keep, going. keep it going keep it going keep it going that's terrific i love you billy oh that's terrific how do you feel
0: In 1979, the New York Times published an article in which a group of experts discussed the legal shortcomings of the then-new drama Kramer vs. Kramer. A sample. It could not have been the correct decision. The public would have been deceived in thinking so, said Philip F. Solomon, a former president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. In 1979, it amazed me to hear the lawyer tell the father, If you want custody, we must go for the jugular, said Doris Jonas Freed, chairman of the American Bar Association's Family Law Section. Freed then went on to describe the film's view of courts favoring the mother, except under extraordinary circumstances, as outdated. But Freed also admitted that this was true of some judges. You're not going to convince them otherwise, she said. They're just that breed that may have to die out. Felice K. Shea, acting justice of the New York State Supreme Court, Also noted that the child at the center of the film's battle would have had some input into the matter, saying, No judge who tries a custody case would make a decision without interviewing the child. The child was a very articulate, intelligent boy in the movie. He surely would have had views about where he wanted to be. Much could have been learned about his welfare. Shea also summarized the general feeling of those consulted for the piece. The legal aspects of the film were 50 years behind the times. But the article's most telling quotes come not from any of the interview subjects, but the author of the piece, George DeLay, who writes that the plot of the film, quote, "...would have sounded bizarre a decade ago, but seems entirely plausible in today's world of mothers seeking self-fulfillment and fathers seeking custody of young children." In 1969, California became the first state to legalize the no-fault divorce, meaning that neither party had to show wrongdoing to end a marriage. Ten years later, the release of Kramer vs. Kramer attempted to capture the state of the nation living in the aftermath of that decision. Did it succeed? That's a question whose answer undoubtedly looks different now than 40 years ago, and will doubtlessly look different still 40 years from now. In depicting the dissolution of the Kramer marriage, Kramer vs. Kramer makes little attempt to be even-handed. Ted Kramer, played by Dustin Hoffman... A New York daddy sustained late at the office and working into the night at home is taken by surprise when his wife, Joanna, played by Meryl Streep, informs him that she's leaving him. Over the course of the next 18 months, Ted comes to realize he's made mistakes and neglected his wife's happiness, but the film depicts Joanna as flaky and irresponsible, driven by some vague new agey quest for self-fulfillment that drives her to California, only to bring her back almost on a whim to retrieve the child she left behind. That women's lib might have stoked her discontent arises as a possibility as well. She might earn her understanding, thanks largely to Streep's performance, but she never earns her sympathy. Kramer vs. Kramer lets that fall almost entirely to Ted, whose struggles begin with an attempt to make French toast and extend to a career-threatening need to be present for his son even when deadlines loom. It's here that the film becomes, to quote another line from the 1979 piece, a divorce movie that transcends the genre of divorce movies. If Kramer vs. Kramer loads the dice on the battle between the Kramers, and the legal proceedings look even more questionable now than in 1979, is there anything that judge won't allow? Ted's relationship with his son, Billy, leaps beyond those concerns. Justin Henry won an Oscar nomination for his work as Billy, and he and Hoffman believably play characters set adrift from the protection of a fully intact family. Ted grows frustrated and overreacts when Billy is careless. Billy turns fearful and confused. It all feels heartbreakingly real as do the father and son's more tender moments. Each in his own way is trying to figure out the new reality of a world in which families might just be temporary arrangements. So was the world itself, which might explain how the film not only earned rave reviews, but beat out All That Jazz, Norma Ray, Breaking Away, and Apocalypse Now for the Best Picture Oscar. The other wins went to Hoffman, who won Best Actor, and Benton, who walked away with prizes for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Director. Which makes sense. Without Benton's low-key direction and focus on the day-to-day routines and challenges of parenthood, it might have seemed like just a one-sided depiction of a man damaged by a selfish woman. Instead, it plays like a snapshot of a family trying to understand what to do when a marriage ends. But other responsibilities remain. One of many in a world trying to do the same. Don't get defensive. Don't don't try to bully me. I'm not getting defensive.
2: Who walked out of the house 15 months ago? I don't care. Joe? I am still his mother. Yes, from 3,000 miles away, and just because you sent a few postcards, it gives you the right to come him. back here? I never
0: stopped wanting him. What makes you him? so
2: sure he wants you?
0: What makes you so sure he doesn't want me?
2: Okay, look, we're going to sit here and bat this back and forth like it was for eight years. It's like old times. So well, you can't stupid. deny me access don't to Miami. Don't tell my me what, what I can or cannot do. Don't talk to me that way. I okay, look, I don't want to get into this. Look, you're okay. gonna have to do what you're gonna have to do, and right. I'm gonna have to do what I'm, I'm
0: very doing. sorry about this. Okay, you can just I... do
2: what you have to do. Right.
0: So, what is everyone's history with this film? I remember, it's weird. I know I saw a lot of it at some point, probably when I was a kid, because it used to be on TV all the time. But I don't think I've ever watched it all the way through. So, how about how about you guys?
1: You know, I was exposed to this film at a pretty young age via Mad Magazine. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: that that I read, too. Yes, you, you remember
1: <laughs> that. I... I remember reading the mad treatment of it like long before I was capable of understanding what was going on in this movie and being sort of baffled but fascinated by the way mad kind of pulled apart like its weaknesses about sexuality, about Meryl Streep's performance. Like they really seemed to find her constant crying hilarious mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> oh, and played it oh. up as a joke. So I didn't I don't think I saw this film until maybe college. And I went in kind of like mentally expecting uh, some sort of like really comic Drama, I guess, uh, just because <laughs> my my impressions came from Mad, and I was surprised at the time how sympathetic it seems uh, to the characters, while feeling just completely imbalanced. Rewatching it again today, I don't feel that nearly as much. Hmm. I actually feel like Meryl Streep's, uh, particularly in that opening scene where she's she's trying to escape, like her open anxiety comes across so clearly, like you really do feel that she's traumatized and that she's trying desperately to protect her own mental health. Later scenes in the movie, I think maybe you don't know her well enough to fully interpret her. Uh, and I've got some problems with the ending of the movie that we can pick into. But just overall, I saw this film at, at pretty wide intervals at different parts of my life. And it it's... Developed a lot in nuance for me. I think overall, the performances are really strong, and like what it's saying about society at the time it was made is just like a really interesting historical document. But then looking at it again today, it becomes just sort of this like a showcase for really strong acting and kind of an analysis of where society was, you know, in 1979.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating to watch today. I definitely saw this film when I was very young. I would have mm. been when I was. A kid, or maybe a early teenager, a long time, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm, I'm I guess I remembered it fairly fondly, but not that strongly. So it was fascinating to return to it now as just this snapshot of the times and what the, what what the ad- attitudes were. And it's a film of significant. Nuance uh, of really fine performances, uh, but also baffling. It's also like a very foreign place. To I mean, you think about it, it's, been 40, it's 40 years. Yeah. I mean, if you saw this film in 1980, 40 years before that's 1940. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, 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 four, you're actually 39 when this thing, when uh, this, this is a 1979 film. I mean, this is, it's been a while since this came out. And so you kind of have to look at it from that perspective. But at the same time, I'm so utterly baffled. And sort of gobsmacked by the decision made by the court. And I think Marriage Story, we'll discuss later, we'll we'll clarify it a little bit more. But like, they're not... Gonna be in different cities. <laughs> They're both people who want to be active parents to their kid. There's a pretty easy joint custody arrangement to be made here, and not really much in the way of splitting of assets either. I don't get this decision. <laughs> it no. doesn't make any sense to me. Like I, and I don't, and I, I really don't get. I, I, I hate to skip to the ending, but I really don't buy. What Meryl Streep
0: does Earth, at the end, a change of heart? No, no, no it's it's it's, it's it comes that's out of total a total narrative convenience. It's well played, but but yeah, but yeah. like oh yeah,
1: but it's a it's a cop out.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is
1: a cop out, and that's I mean that's sort of what I was dodging around is just the sense that. It has to happen for the story to have anything like – I don't even feel like it's a question of, like, does this movie have to have a happy ending? Like, this was the 70s. You could have super downer endings. (laughs) But here it would be – you know, if she just walks off with a kid and that's the end of it, it wouldn't be a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, heroes dying gloriously. Everybody would just be thinking about that poor child and, like, how he was torn away from his father, like, even more so than Dustin Hoffman. Uh, you know, you can sympathize with his feelings and still think, well, you know, this is going to traumatize him. But like, he's an adult; he's going to move on. But now everybody would be thinking about the kid. So I, I feel like that story ending is just all about like, how can we, having done all of this, like, put the story back in a place where nobody's going to burn Hollywood down in a rage?
2: Well, well, imagine this alternative ending, Tasha. What if Meryl Streep calls? Dustin Hoffman down to the lobby, and she says, "Dustin Hoffman, whatever your character's <laughs> name is, Ted. Ted, what if we had a more equitable custody arrangement? Like, wow, what a, what an ending that would be! Yeah, <laughs> like like we we're because the arrangement, the ruling is." She has custody. He gets two weekends uh, a month. And I think
0: one other night or
2: something like that. or, or Not even, it, you know, maybe, Two no, weekends a month half and then half, like, the, holidays, like I half of the holidays. Yeah, I thought That's it was
0: really terrible. interesting digging up that New York Times piece about how it was totally unfair. It was totally unfair and it would never happen except it happened. <laughs> you know, except yeah. it still yeah. happened. I, I really do feel like, you know, my understanding growing up was that courts almost always sided with the mother. Uh, and I think that was fairly common practice, you know. Even, but in this case is just so egregious where one parent is obviously parenting the child, and the other is stepping back in after after you know uh, flitting off <laughs> with with little warning. Now, I I think you're right. I think that opening scene, mm-hmm. you really do feel her pain, and you do get the sense in that scene, and then over the course of the movie, this is someone who was slotted into this role of you know you stay at home, you're the mother because that's what women do even by someone uh, of Dustin Hoffman's age who ought to be of the generation that's supposed to get beyond that, but really, you know, didn't, you know? And and I, I think, you know, I think it's, it is, that feels really real. I'm not sure that character is treated fairly. Uh, I, I think that treat, character is treated fairly as a character, but as like sort of a stand-in for what women do these days. I <laughs> think it's it's a little it's a little it's a little troubling.
1: I think that the a lot of the problem is in the courtroom scene because the courtroom scene stops being about people. So much of this movie, like so many of these like low key scenes of what Dustin Hoffman's like with his son, or even that opening where Meryl Streep is like admitting to herself that she is going to leave this child where she's sort of petting him and he's like whatever mom i'll see you in the morning mm-hmm. and she's thinking no you won't like that's heartbreaking the all but all of it just feels very real it feels very human The the whole business of you know the kid accidentally falls off the the playground equipment and the dad panics and then has to be in the hospital with him watching him ball through necessary treatment that's as traumatizing for the dad as it is for the son, all of that feels very real. Mm -hmm. The courtroom scene is about drama. It's about injustice. It's about, like, pulling at your heartstrings. It's about pain. But as a result, the lawyers in particular just never come across as particularly convincing. It's never convincing to me that either the judge or Ted's uh, lawyer would sit still while the opposing lawyer is trying to make hay out of the fact that he lost his job because he was prioritizing his son it's like Mm. you're an unfit father because you took care of your son how dare you (laughs) like there's there's no logic to that there's no logic to the lawyer letting it stand there's no logic to the judge letting it stand it's all just set up so the audience can feel dudgeon it's like an early case of of outrage culture like how dare he get away with that
0: yeah i think that's the weakest part of the movie Mm -hmm, uh, the final act
1: and and and, you know the ending also like you're you're right she could have you know, proposed a more equitable uh, relationship. Yeah. She could have spelled out in more detail what she wanted. Like the the brevity of that scene, I think, takes her from, you can believe her in that in that first sequence as a, like a torn mom dealing with such extreme anxiety that she flees. You are kind of on the fence during the, the courtroom scene because she's kind of like, it, like how sincere is any of this? Does she believe everything she's saying? Is this lawyer really torturing her? But then, in the end, when she's like, eh, "After all that, I decided to just give him up." I, I think Keith Keith's right. There's no way to read that except that she's a complete flake who doesn't know what she wants.
2: Do you know what would be an amazing double feature with this movie, Keith What's and that? Tasha? Marriage uh, story. <laughs> well, marriage story is pretty damn good, but but <laughs> but the one that the one one that would be kind of interesting with respect to Joanna is the Rain People, the hmm. the Francis Ford Coppola movie, which is all about. A housewife who, who, for reasons that are unknown or at least inexplicable to her husband, just decides to leave (laughs) and go out on her own. And she doesn't have a plan. She's just stifled by the life that she has. And the difference is that, that, of course, she is the hero of that story. She is the one who we are following. And so... But in Kramer versus Kramer, uh, you know, I think we get these really crucial scenes at the beginning. Uh, the, the the opening is so, I think, really important to, to establishing some amount of sympathy for Joanna. But the fact is that the fact that she is not present in the film and not, certainly not present in the life of her child is is going to make it so hard for us as an audience to feel what she's going through and to understand what, she, what she's going through. And so it kind of creates this imbalance that the film can't really get through. But if you actually pull back, And, like, look at the big picture. I mean, she's been the one who has exclusively taken care of this kid Mm -hmm. while he's been very career-oriented per societal expectations, I suppose. But, like, it's been this stifling burden in which she's been completely squashed in this marriage by a guy who can't even freaking make a piece of french toast you know i'm mean, he who's utterly incompetent with taking over as a parent i mean he does not he doesn't know the first thing you know he's cooking salisbury steak you know tv dinners or whatever that's the best he can do mm-hmm. um you know he, he's not he doesn't know what he's doing at all so so which tells you immediately that he was not at all an equal partner in raising this kid so he's just accounting for the last whatever 14 18 months uh, that we see, we see all of that time that he has, and, and of course that relationship grows and ex- is extremely touching. There's all these missing years, which she was in charge, and she did everything. So if you can make that imaginative leap and understand that she was the one who, who had to do all of this and was really the near-exclusive caretaker of this kid, yeah, then you start to feel for her some more.
1: Well, the whole film asks you to imagine like an entire an intellectual and emotional life for her that you don't ever get to see. I mean, of of course it's not going to feel fair and balanced. It's going to feel like you spend all of the time with one of them and you have to just kind of Fill in the blanks according to your own predilections, I think. Like, how sincere she comes across in that court scene may depend really strongly on just how much you can sympathize with like a weeping woman talking about how neglected it is she is and how terrible it is that she was forced to be nothing but a mother. You know, that's something that's going to trigger like strong feelings in people that are going to be very, very based on their own, their own lives, their own relationships with their parents, their own relationships with their children.
0: Definitely. But how do you feel like this reflected the reality of parenting because I feel like I've never been the yell at the kid until they go to bed uh, and weep <laughs> parent, but I've definitely been the why did you just put your juice there in the first place parent. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I think it does. It's really good about capturing how like little tensions build and how small mistakes can lead to big mistakes and how can be tortured by feeling frustration with with a kid who doesn't know any better but at the same time why don't you know better you know yeah i like think it's very good about that
2: yeah i really felt that scene with the ice cream where he doesn't want to eat his yeah. spray steak but he wants to have ice cream and he gets the ice cream out and um ted is threatening him it's like you take a bite you're gonna get in big big trouble and i, and I can see that you know, those boundaries are things that kids test all the time, and the ability to set them and abide by them and do it in a way that is fair and just and not punitive and harsh that's not easy to do. And he doesn't know what he, he, he does, he fails utterly to do it. <laughs> he fails utterly, he's failed utterly to set any guardrails for this kid to begin with. Which allows the kid to be brazen enough to do what he does with the ice cream. And then he completely overreacts when he crosses those boundaries that he's decided at the last minute he's going to set. So that part felt pretty real. And I think just generally, if you're not experienced as a parent, if you're not engaged as a parent, and and if you haven't been involved in kind of the routine of things, it's bad for... Parent and child. I mean, mm-hmm. they because they, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> kids don't know anything. That's what. That's why you're there. <laughs> that's why. That's you, why you, you call them kids. You set, you set them. You <laughs> wait. What? <laughs> like, so you, like you're there to you're there to give them some kind of direction, or at least you know draw those lines. And and uh, if you don't, if you haven't done that then it's a problem and it becomes a problem for you because you become frustrated and you overreact. It becomes a problem for them because they don't know what they're doing and they act like brats. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's a bad either way. So I, all that stuff felt very real. I mean, I think if the film, weirdly enough, it succeeds the least as a film about divorce and the divorce process, but it, it is successful, I think, as a portrait of somebody who's trying to do better as a parent mm-hmm. and about the bond between
0: parent and child. I mean, all that stuff was quite affecting. Yeah, the French Toast bookends is, is a, lovely, yeah. it's a lovely bit of uh, scripting.
1: Yeah, that second scene of the two of them making French Toast together, I mean, it's it's practically slow cinema. It's more or less silent. They're just working in concert. And as a bookend, it's a, a really smart piece of storytelling. But just as a scene of them doing this thing that is so is so practiced, is so routine, is almost mechanized. Like there's something just beautiful about their coordination. I haven't cared for French Toast particularly since childhood. I liked it a lot when I was a kid but uh, probably haven't had it in more than 20 years. And that film weirdly made me want French toast. As
0: someone who is, I don't know if I'm borderline lactose intolerant, but I I get grossed out by milk easily Mm -hmm. and eggs too. So that first, a little rough to watch that first Uh, one.
1: It certainly is. I do like
0: French toast. Like the finished product is great. Mm,
1: (laughs) It certainly is messy.
0: Keith, I can can make you some good French toast. Oh, sure. On
2: on homemade brioche.
1: Something about the ice cream scene. I read that that whole thing was improvised. And that uh, Hmm. Benton just liked it enough that he left it in the film. And I find that hard to imagine, like, how exactly it came about. Uh, and I would love to read more about exactly what was improvised, if it was just the dialogue, if they had the scenario, or if they were sitting there at the table and the kid was just like, I'm gonna go, go get some ice cream. Uh, I hate when you get these little uh, x-ray on Amazon slash IMDB trivia kind of blips <laughs> that are completely uncredited, like, you don't know where they come from. And you're gonna find them reflected all over the web without. Again, any context whatsoever. But speaking to the realism of uh, parenting, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I have a family. And I can tell you that the thing that struck me as most realistic about that aspect of the storytelling here was just the dichotomy between what it's like to make decisions within a family – Based on your personal relationship, based on the moment, based on emotions, based on all of these different things, none of which comes across whatsoever if somebody describes the situation outside the family, outside the relationship. Like the way the kid's accident comes up in court just sounds so damning when you just say, I felt responsible because I was supposed to be watching him and he nearly lost an eye. But, you know, when you're actually there for the sequence, like, you see how it happens. Like, he's, he is actively watching the kid. The kid's other guardian is standing literally physically next to him. Like, you can tell that it was all an accident, but that doesn't matter to people outside the situation who are just hearing it described. And so much family stuff is like that. You know, if you just, if you say, well, you know, she misbehaved and I hit her, uh, there's like 50% of American society these days will be like, oh, my God, you're a monster. And... You know, people who grew up with it maybe won't, but there's just a whole lot of nuance and personal decision-making that goes into something like that that just doesn't come across in description.
0: Yeah, uh, just a brief aside, but the, the things in the, in the, this movie that made it feel like, wow, 40 years is a long time ago, because everything that's in my lifetime, I was, I was six for most of 1979, <laughs> you know, uh, but at the same time, like... Playground safety standards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> living in New York for like $32,000 a year, in Manhattan <laughs> for $32,000 a year. Uh, and then when Hoffman's talking about the things he grew up with and how he didn't have television, it's like, wow, yeah, Dustin Hoffman's really old. <laughs> uh, you know, he wouldn't have been old in seventy nine, but but you wouldn't have grown up with that stuff. You would have grown up with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I mean, the Brooklyn Dodgers is that's ancient history now, but uh, not it was not not for pyramid. anyway. That's that's neither here nor there. No, that's I it. know I'm, it's
2: weird to see to see a movie like this in understand it as a period piece. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember that time. Well, you the TV there.
0: commercials were exactly what I grew up with. You know? It's yeah. like, and know, was like watching, it's like, oh, I never knew Casey Kasem did the Raid commercial. I watched <laughs> that a billion times. We <laughs> um, talk about the style of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Bitton. Uh, is director. It's the director of this. Al um, uh, Almendras is the cinematographer. Because at one point, Francois Truffaut was considering directing it as, as his as his first American film, which he never got around to making. One of them, but it's had a really interesting career, and it was an interesting place in his career at this point. Like he, he, you know, he wrote uh, was one of the writers of Bonnie and Clyde. I think he's the only credited screenwriter of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and at this point, he, you know, the, the year before he'd written Superman, but as a director, he made uh, Bad Company, which is a really Good revisionist western starring Jeff Bridges, uh, and The Late Show, which is a really cool kind of, you know, cockeyed take on the on the classic uh, Hollywood mystery starring Art Carney and, and and Lily Tomlin. It's a lot of fun if you haven't seen it. It's a really good uh, double feature with a long long goodbye. But neither of those films are of the same style. And this is this is uh, very low key, very observational, very. Minimal cutting lets things play out in in long scenes. Mm -hmm. I think it's the right approach for the story because I think you can easily tip over into uh, hysteria or just sort of manipulation if, if you do it any other way.
1: I wonder how much of that kind of long take mentality came out of some of this being just like improv with the kid, mm-hmm. because he's a, a really astonishing actor for a child actor of the era. I, this isn't the style that most kid actors took on. Like most of them were given very precocious dialogue and were very big and bright. But he really feels like a kid.
0: He feels like a real kid. Yeah. yeah.
1: And if a lot of this, and apparently, uh, you know, he was he was quite the little actor, quite the little little diva. There's reports of him uh, freaking out when like other kids were winning awards uh you know during award season after this but uh you know and the the sequence where he's he's bawling on the table is his face is being stitched up uh, apparently just literally came out of Benton sitting down with him and, and doing the like I want you to remember the saddest thing that's ever happened to you like that kind of thing and it's hard to believe watching it it's like are they really traumatizing that kid are, are they really hurting him in some way? He spends so much of the movie crying and it, it's really very convincing. So I wonder if like working with him in a naturalistic environment to, to eke out that performance is one of the reasons like the takes are so long. The, the camera is so static that we just sort of spend so much time living in the environment to, to capture those moments.
2: I think the style of it is quite subtly beautiful it's photographed by nestor almendros who had won the oscar for days of heaven the year before and days of heaven famously one of the most beautiful films ever
0: made good looking movie
2: and uh and somebody who, who had worked with Truffaut, and he he, he went on the next year to do the blue lagoon which for all of its faults as a film is certainly a beautiful look at but he's also someone you'd associate with Exteriors in natural light was his thing.
0: Yeah, uh, a lot of the Romer films he made are, are you right, know, and all, all that, like *Culinary at the Beach*. They're, they're walking and it's, talking it's out, outside, yeah. and
2: it's, it's, uh, it's everything is his, so. His style is pretty wide open. There's a lot of um, not a lot in the way of telephoto lenses. You kind of get a sense of the space, mm-hmm. but it, also
1: a lot of close-ups. I mean, he also went on to do *Sophie's Choice* again with with Meryl Streep, and that is another movie that leans very heavily on on pretty extreme uh, personal intimate close-ups of somebody's face as they're experiencing some very extreme emotions. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think he must have just figured out how to light Meryl Streep for, for maximum yeah. drama.
2: Yeah, she's she, She's got some, her face is so striking. <laughs> I mean, she's Meryl Streep, I guess, but in, the, in this movie, I mean, as little as she's in it, you can't look away. She has such a remarkable face and such a remarkable expression. And it does absolutely everything she possibly can with this character to, to bring it to life. And it's not easy, I don't think.
1: And in both of those films, like uh, one, one sort of aspect of that, that extreme intimacy with her is you know, she doesn't look great in a lot of these, uh in a lot of these sequences. You know, she's, she's really crying. Like her, her eyes swell up and her nose runs and her skin turns blotchy and it's, it's not elegant or glamorous, it's real. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the fact that he gets so close in with her and gets her lit so well uh, really kind of enhances that, that feeling of closeness and intimacy and maybe seeing things that you shouldn't be seeing.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and some of the, some of the, Behind the scenes stuff is kind of you know to appreciate the the illusion of the film. We probably it's a rock you don't want to turn over. There was Meryl Streep's talked pretty extensively about how unpleasant working with Dustin Hoffman was, and, and uh, he does not come off uh, well in descriptions of the of the making of this film. Well, Just, then,
2: let's let's talk about it then.
0: Yeah, which is can be distracting when he's playing such a sensitive or evolving into a sensitive man. It's it's kind of distracting to know some of that stuff.
1: I mean, I've read a lot of stories about him being very methody and like abusive to his partners and egotistical. I haven't really read what she said about this. Can you can yeah, you sum up? Yeah, he slapped her.
0: Uh, he would. Uh, her husband John Casale had just died, and he would taunt her with that to uh, get her emotional uh, for the performance. Uh, there was some groping involved. Uh, yeah, it was uh, verbal abuse is not 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 good stuff. Not good stuff.
1: Uh, I, great. I, I figured,
0: <laughs> who was it on Twitter? This we talked about how you never hear people playing nice characters, talking about how they had to remain in character part of the method. It's always people playing assholes, you know? That was, like, Robert, yeah. that was Robert
2: Pattinson. Okay, Ro- that. okay,
0: oh, was, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, oh, yeah, someone on Twitter. You know, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pat-
2: <laughs> this is a Robert Pattinson quote, which is a, which is a good one. I mean, I think, I think a lot of that style of acting, of uh, method acting, has been colored in such a bad light now. You know, I mean, obviously, it doesn't help if, if people like Hoffman are actually misbehaving Mm -hmm. on a set and misbehaving in their lives but i think generally those types of tricks and that kind of aggression and and the extreme lengths to which people go to deliver a performance it can not only not enhance the performance ultimately but um make the experience really
0: unpleasant for the other people who are trying to act I it's feel like the pendulum swung on the other direction in terms of the appreciation of method acting lately. Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, in part because of people like Jared Leto, it's just, just a certain amount of, like the press loves to talk about the wacky shenanigans that take place on the film, on the sets of uh, films with method actors behaving badly, you know, but directors don't want to work with it. Like other actors don't necessarily want to work with it. So many directors these days when you're interviewing them are, are like, talk about like, creating a safe environment for the actors, creating an environment where the actors can, can be what they need to be. And when you've got one ham who's handing out dead rats and, and used condoms, like that's not really good for anybody's space. I also just find it hinky whenever a leading man seems to think it's his job to help his female co-star in particular get into character via abuse. I'm looking at you, Marlon Brando in Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that's like a, that's
2: you, know, really uh, you know, extreme example.
0: You know, who needs help acting, Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta push her along, you know.
2: But I think there is an element where it does show in this character. I mean, obviously, it's uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not going to minimize what he did on the set, which sounds right. horrible. Um, But this character is is a abrasive jerk (laughs) for a while. Mm -hmm. It, it, It takes him a really long time to get out of his own head and become an actual competent father and somebody who can understand that there are things more important than his own career and his his own ambitions that he's got other responsibilities and things to get in touch with. And so the jerky side of that character is very persuasively communicated by by uh, Dustin Hoffman in this movie. So uh, h- however it took him to get there, whether it's method acting or him just generally being a jerk, uh, he kind of gets there.
1: There's so many idiosyncrasies to how Dustin Hoffman plays characters in general, and here like his... His kind of weird paternalism, uh, I, I do find it off putting in some sort of interesting ways. Like, I think Ted's relationship with Margaret is really interesting. Like, it feels really unusual, not just in films of, of the era, but in films at all, to see an adult man and woman who are both divorced and both kind of like hungry for a relationship to have a friendship that isn't sexual at all, doesn't mm-hmm. have sexual tension. I mean, he gropes her on the butt casually at one point during this movie. And it's just, a, it's it's meant as a friendly gesture. He puts his arm around her and like, he's not macking on her. It's just, they just kind of have physical contact with each other. And like, when the son asks, like, are you, are you guys going to get married? He's like, no, no, <laughs> no, nothing like that. Yeah. So I think on paper, that's a really interesting, like actual male-female friendship. But then the way Dustin Hoffman plays it just kind of comes across as a little creepy and a little grabby and it it bugs me every time i watch it comes
0: off as of the time in some ways though you know i don't know um kind of mad yeah he he can't not be kind of a condescending jerk to women even when the ones he likes that that he's friends with you know i i I, it's a it's a character detail i guess
2: but then you get to that point in the courtroom where she's like they're they're beautiful together Mm -hmm. you know father and son So, I I don't know. I mean, I I thought that was a nice element of the movie i'm glad that we kind of got to it this is a character played by jane alexander who adds i think adds something pretty significant to the movie because this is she, she's somebody who was friends with joanna primarily and and uh only came to know comes to know ted uh, after joanna leaves and um she could be the one who quite literally testifies to his fitness as a as a parent but i, I felt like that relationship there was some, a realness there and a realness to her own Domestic situation and and um, you know which is also complicated and which is also about her thinking about her marriage and whether what's going to happen if maybe that is able to be resolved and would she take this guy back and I thought it's just nice it's nice that when you can have. You know these sort of lived-in elements in a movie like that. It just gives everything a lot more authenticity.
1: Yeah, I think just the conversations that they're able to have about their relationships. I feel like that would be a very different, like the the conversation that he has with his boss uh, about his wife and how he feels about her. Mm-hmm. That's inevitably going to feel like a Mad Men kind of thing. Like that's inevitably going to feel removed from any kind of like close emotion because it's a work relationship and it's two men talking about how a woman failed one of them. But when he's talking to his female friend who's gone through a very similar thing and both of them, regardless of the gender line, like have experienced very similar things and are in very similar emotional places. It makes it feel kind of universal in a, in a charming way, like the pain of divorce and the, the isolation and the wonder about the future. It acknowledges that this happens to people on both sides of that fence. And I, I think it's a really healthy thing.
0: Uh, we should talk about the humor of this of this film as well because it 's not it could just be a dreadful slog given the topic, but I mean you get moments like you get the running gag about uh about the toilet. Uh, never being flushed, uh, no matter who's using it. And <laughs> just sort of that r- morning routine you get, you know, his awkward adventures in, in single date in into into dating again or dating or whatever you want to call it with uh his coworker co-worker played by by Joe Beth Williams and the the do you like fried chicken, which is just a great kid, <laughs> non sequitur. I mean, there's some really funny moments in this movie. That was Joe Beth Williams. Yeah. Jobeth Williams or well, in her that? in her debut.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's that was uh with amazing glasses. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, all those things help. I mean, just help the world of the film become more persuasive. That's just basically it. I mean, you, you know, of course, this is a very heavy film. That is, it's full of full of emotion and high stakes, and and uh, yet, it, you know, it's filled with with tiny hu- human details that make you feel like the people making it know what they're talking about. <laughs> And have had experiences like that, or just you know, that's just it's ultimately what, what makes the difference between a good movie and a bad movie is just that investment of detail in the small things.
0: I'd be curious to read the book by Avery Corman. I know one thing: Streep has said is that part of her coming on board, and then actually she was up for the Joe Beth Williams part originally, and then pushed to get the the Joanne part. And one thing she pushed for was to flesh out the character, who she found. Um, completely unsympathetic on the page. So I, mm. I wonder what I wonder what the book is like. It's from the, Avery Corman's, also the author of of, of uh, Oh God, another landmark seventies film. <laughs> no way, really? Oh, nice. yeah, yeah.
2: How in the world is that a book?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. It's barely a movie. Oh no, God, <laughs> just you watched devil. Watched it fairly recently. It's...
2: Did you watch all the Oh God? Did you watch all of them? Or no, just, just the, the first one. Oh my gosh. One, yeah.
0: We're speculating about books we haven't read, and, and veering off topic to talk about the Oh God series. That may be our cue to to wind down this this portion of the show. We will be right back after the break to talk about feedback. <laughs> Now it's time for feedback, where our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. This week, we've got a letter that sheds some light on the mystery of the host's title. Tasha,
1: can you clear that up for us? Sure. Mikhail writes, The Korean title of Bong's The Host is Kweemul, which translates to monster. Maybe given the award-winning film Monster, which came out in 2003, the U.S. distributors of The Host didn't want any confusion.
0: Well, how about that? That clears, that clears that up. I do like the simplicity of just calling it Monster.
1: Yeah, it, it's made me wonder a lot like who the host is, just as the, there's been a lot of debate about who the parasite is in Parasite. Mm. So yeah, I would love to know more about why they picked that specific uh, title. But I, I mean, I can certainly understand why they didn't just want to call it Monster, even leaving aside the conflict. That's just a, a pretty basic title. But how did they end up with the host?
0: Here's some much more substantial bong feedback related to Parasite about metaphors and repeat viewings. Scott, can you share that? I can.
2: Albert writes, I really enjoyed your recent episode on Parasite, particularly your discussion surrounding basements and the many staircases in the film. Us also explored similar ideas expertly this year, but I can't think of a better visual metaphor for class struggle in any movie than the moment in Parasite when the previous housekeeper is kicked down the stairs. Can you talk about some of your favorite uses of metaphors for common themes in film, recent or all time? This movie is so good, I need to squeeze in another question. When I saw Parasite a second time, I picked up on a neat little character nuance early on in the film. When the son of the Kim family inquires about the job opportunity to the pizza place employee, the family literally surrounds the poor girl who is just trying to uphold her company's brand, mind you, establishing their parasitic nature in a very subtle and clever way. Can you think of any of your favorite discoveries on repeat viewings that you didn't catch the first time watching a film?
1: Man, Albert, you don't ask for much, do you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are both huge questions. Big,
1: meaty, fun questions. I'm going to start with uh, favorite uses of metaphor. I've I've got one for uh, favorite big metaphors for class struggles that I think maybe is even better than the upstairs-downstairs thing in Parasite. And that's John Carpenter's They Live, mm. which openly establishes that kind of the people on top in capitalist society, the people who are controlling things, the people who find it necessary for everybody to live in a constant state of money worship and purchasing things for satisfaction are literal aliens. You know, <laughs> that that half of the world is made up of these aliens that are controlling everything uh, and deliberately shaping society in a way that's antithetical to the way actual humans live. And that all you need to do is put on these special glasses and see the world the way it actually is. And suddenly, suddenly you realize that, I mean, it's, it's literally uh, a pulling the wool off somebody's eyes by putting a piece of plastic on someone's eyes. And I just, I think the idea that that fundamentally capitalism is kind of an alien thing that, that puts us all in this like, weird headspace is just a really interesting idea Mm -hmm. and separating the haves and the have-nots into different species is a really interesting idea
2: yeah i mean i think that's something that genre films and horror films do particularly well i mean i I almost don't think you can talk about that specific thing without talking about george romero i mean that is that is Mm -hmm. that's what his entire dead series was all about it was just was finding some Metaphor, some metaphor, whether it's whether it's for um, you know, consumerism or, or or the war in Iraq or what have you, to sort of attach the movie to, and that's something that is common to a lot of horror films. I mean, you think about People Under the Stairs, the Wes Craven film, and its attachment to Reaganism and those values. I mean, there's a lot of uh, examples in in that genre where metaphor works particularly well. And then if you talk about upstairs downstairs stuff. I mean that that happens a lot. I mean you can see a lot of these metaphors play out in uh, Buñuel films or you can see it in like Gosford Park, you know. Um I I it's it's effective.
0: To keep going with with uh, the theme of this week's episode. I I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow again another one of on my someone on Twitter. Uh, not just someone on Twitter, but someone on Twitter when we were talking when I mentioned this film uh brought up The Brood as a uh a sort of a horror metaphor mm-hmm. for for divorce and 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 I think probably uh, I mean, you know, I wasn't aware the first time I saw it, but as, as I've read interviews with Cronenberg over the years, it's pretty directly inspired by his own experiences with divorce and well,
2: parenting uh, and, and childbirth
0: and that too but i mean but i mean um his wife took the kids and went to the kind of a cult uh, you know ar- question arguably cult-like environment you know mm. so uh it's all uh that's all in the movie too so that's I mean, that's, standard
2: canadian stuff though yeah i know i know but, but a, i mean that's a, that's a standard like no-fault canadian divorce the, the, the wife gets to take the kid to a cult
0: yeah exactly well, i think you're right though I, I think i think horror and sci-fi can run with these metaphors in places that other genres can't. And that's part of what makes them so fascinating.
1: Yeah. In keeping with that, I'd say another all time favorite metaphor is the matrix. The, mm. the whole idea that again, society is An artificial construct, and if you see beyond it, if you see, you know, kind of uh, on a a deeper level, you can see how artificial it all is. The the line, like, why do—what is it? Why do my eyes hurt? It's because you've never used them before. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason the whole red pill thing has become— such a uh, an unfortunate but widely embraced meme like the 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 idea of taking a pill and being able to see what the truth is in society and see that like everything that you that you take for granted uh, is kind of a lie that's been handed you in order to manipulate you Uh, it's it's heady stuff Um, it's very political stuff but it's also just you know, it's an exciting science fiction story at the same time. It's, it's very easy to read it on a very literal level uh, as this kind of chosen one adventure. Or you can, you know, dive deep into the the Lichtenstein of it all or like, you know, whoever uh, Lana Wachowski is exploring these days. Like she, she just she gets very, very deep into the Heidegger philosophy of, of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fun to hear her talk about it. But it's also just a really good metaphor.
2: So what about this other question about favorite uh, discoveries on repeat viewings?
0: I only got one question. Sorry.
1: i'll I'll give you a moment to think i'll I'll tell you i'll tell you what i think maybe my my all-time favorite is the the first one that i jumped to was in the prestige uh anybody who hasn't seen the prestige should skip over this i might try to talk around it a little bit but but there's really no way to get there there are a lot of reveals in christopher nolan's the prestige there are a lot of things that you don't you're not meant to know the first time so you're definitely not meant to see them the first time and I love that movie. I love the way it unfolds. I went back and watched it a second time, and you can, you can honestly see that Christian Bale is playing two different characters. Uh, it's very subtle. Um, it's very careful. But you can tell who he's playing in every given scene. You can tell that he's conscious of who he's playing in every given scene. And in the sequence immediately after his character's sort of like servant best friend guy uh, is captured and buried alive and nearly dies. The way he plays the next scene only makes sense if you understand what the secret, what that character's secret is and, and what's been going on. And it just it gives the whole film a level of hidden nuance that you're just you're not equipped to see the first time. Uh, but, you know, it's it's very clear that he's thinking about it on a level that a first time viewer is not.
2: Well, that was that is really funny. You mentioned the prestige is I was going to mention Memento. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't know if there's any one, one standout detail, but I think the thing with his movies and this and actually it was true of Interstellar for me, too. It's like they're so complex in design and send you on such a head trip just to try to kind of like follow along that you don't realize how much emotion is packed into the, to these ideas that are at play. And so, and so when you really start to confront what Memento was actually about and what this character is doing every day it's just it kind of is heartbreaking in ways that you just could not have expected because you're just you're so busy playing catch up that first viewing so there's so there's that you know another but more recently i can think of uh i i wasn't a huge fan of the sixth sense when it came out but i was among the many surprised by the the twist in that movie and of course and so but i watched it again and i was kind of astonished by like how Screamingly obvious it is <laughs> that, he, that, that what the twist is, but you, you, everyone misses it the first time. But it's, it, it the film does not cheat on that twist. I mean, you know, in a, you know, he became, uh, Shyamalan became the twist guy after that movie and it's sort of in, in a very bad way. But, uh, and I think because we started to anticipate what those twists would be, they became, they seem tackier, but we anticipate any of that stuff with The Sixth Sense and, uh, you know for him to hide that revelation in plain sight and uh, i'm still fooled with you, with it i you with it I, I a lot of respect i had a lot of respect for it
1: this time yeah i have a, a just a very small thing with the village in that regard the way they talk in the community seems so stiff and artificial and weird it's mm-hmm. actually off putting the first time through when you understand that it's stiff and artificial because they stiffly artificially created it yeah. on purpose. Yeah. Like that this is, this is a planned community where like, of course everything feels fake. It's because it's fake. Like it it just adds a richness to the movie that I think is actually literally funny.
0: Yeah. I think movies with twists are pretty obvious for that reason, just because you, you're kind of in on it um, as well. But I, mean, I think movies where, where you kind of, you know, they don't necessarily count as twist movies, but I, I mean, I found like I like, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, more each oh, show. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of kind of sink into what they're doing. But we we're talking before about um, Magnolia because our our, our, our uh, friends at Film spotting just talked about it too. But that's a film that's just just loaded with things like you know numbers that recur and Masonic symbols and 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 references and things like that. Uh, so I think you know those those kind of films where they're just absolutely where every detail has been thought through. Those are the ones that really improve on second View. And, and or saying like you know someone who's you know working at a really detailed level like like a you know, green Peter Greenaway or something no, where you, no. can, you can watch sure. those films over and over yeah. and never catch every everything that's been every detail that's been packed into it
1: it's funny uh, Peter Greenaway just came up for me literally last night with uh, a friend I haven't talked about movies with much. He had just watched Cook Thief, Wife Lover on the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, just the density that goes into Peter Greenaway movies and the parallelism that he loves and the symbolism that he loves, those movies are movies that you're going to want to watch Repeatedly, if you're uh, going to want to it. Yeah, yeah. or not at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one of those two. One of yeah, those
2: yeah, two yeah, things. Yeah, that I mean, the cook. I, cook Thief is still my favorite of his, but boy, it, it's
0: intense. You
2: know, it's a
0: you know, is is Prospero's books on there? It's one of the ones I have not seen. Yeah,
2: yeah, Prosperous books is on there, as is the Pillow Book, uh, A Zed and Two Knots, and. The Draftsman's Contract, which is a
1: pretty solid lineup. Looks okay, like a
0: that's, lot of short, now i looking at it now, that's a lot of short films I haven't seen either, too. When does all this stuff leave?
1: I don't hugely recommend his short films, especially mm. not as a way to get into him, but I think Pillow Book is one of his most accessible, and Zed and Two Knots was the one that hooked me.
0: You say start with uh, The Falls, uh, three hours and 15 minutes.
2: <laughs> I think The, the Draftsman's Contract is a great place to start. It's yeah, it's right. a good he's, one. Right. He's, he's on it from the start, and it's Zed quite, quite fun room. and accessible. Well, it and really depends on your, your
1: toleration for uh, you know fairly, fairly dense uh, costume drama intrigue. If you uh, like
2: Barry Lyndon, maybe you'll like the Drassens Contract. I don't well, know. Well,
1: there you go. So, uh, again, Peter Greenaway, rewatching Peter Greenaway films, uh, mm. sort of part of the experience.
0: Last call for a second, Terry, uh, viewing details.
1: You know, the second time I listen to this uh, podcast recording, I'm going to be like, oh, why didn't I talk I about know, blah, blah? Know, oh, totally.
0: but anyway, well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 three-234-97 or email us at comments at net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Noah Baumbach's new film, Marriage Story. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash show, and follow us on Twitter at, at Next Picture pod. so we always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please remember to flush the toilet, or at least close the door when using the bathroom.
1: Smile, he thinks it's Christmas or his fifth birthday. And he thinks C-U-S-T-O-D-Y smells fun or play all oh, the hurting words and turn my head when I speak. Cause I can't spell away this hurt that's dripping down my cheek. Our D-I-V-O.